Well, this morning um, we've got a uh, guest preacher, Trell from Georgia. Another Trell from Georgia. I, the first time this Trell, uh, first time I spoke with him, he said, hey, my name's Trell, I'm from Georgia. I was like, all right, <laughs> who put you up to this? <laughs> But uh, Trell is a church planner uh, in South Carolina. Um, I don't know, Trell, if you're going to say much about your work. All right, so I'll say a little bit about it. Um, Trell uh, is from Georgia, uh, went to school in Tennessee, ended up in North Carolina at Southeastern Seminary. And uh, while he was at the seminary, uh, served at a church called Faith Baptist Church. Uh, as he's finishing up seminary, a church, another church in North Carolina, or South Carolina, in Rock Hill, South Carolina, was donated a building. And um, it was a, the, the church, uh, the building that was there was a church that had kind of dwindled and, and died. And they donated the building to another church. And then that church found Trell and is bringing him to replant a church in that old building uh, where a church had died. And um, so he, it's a fresh church plant in an old church building. And uh, so it is our uh, joy to be able to have him here. He's hoping to uh, launch as a new church in August. His church is going to be called Pioneer Church. He's got a core of about 13 people, hoping for 30 to 50 by the time they launch. And um, so let's just uh, welcome him and be praying for him as he uh, goes about his work. Trill, come on, brother. Well, good morning, Garden Church family. Joe said he thought I was playing a joke on him when I told him my name and where I was from. I thought he was playing a joke on me when he said he knew another Trill from Georgia. I've not met one, so I'm glad to, to know both Trill and Joe. It's been a blessing getting to know those brothers over the last, or getting, getting to know Joel over the last couple of years, and. Uh, trail over the last few months, um, and I'm glad to be here with y'all. I've been blessed by their fellowship, heard a lot about y'all as a church, and I'm excited to be here opening the word with you this morning. Uh, so if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 10. I'm going to give a disclaimer. Uh, I've never, I don't think, ever preached with my phone on the pulpit. My wife is about 38 weeks pregnant. Our son is due in 15 days, so if I get a text message, um, I love y'all. <laughs> I trust the Holy Spirit to lead y'all, but I got to go. <laughs> But we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 10. While y'all flip there, I want to throw a question at you. Have you ever thought about how we sometimes use certain words so often that they lose the effect they're actually intended to have? I think the word awesome is one of those words. So about three years ago, I decided to stop using the word awesome unless I was actually talking about something that was awesome. I wanted to reserve the word to describe things that actually were what the word is supposed to mean. See, awesome isn't a scoop of ice cream that I really enjoy. The ice cream might be good. The ice cream might even be great. But awesome, that explains something so grand that whatever's being talked about actually leads a person to a state of awe. Awesome is what happens when, when, when we experience something that leaves us with limited words to describe it, so we have to use a word like awesome. Awesome is when you hike to the top of a mountain at just the right time of day, 
and you see the sun coming up or you see the sun setting, you're led to think, oh my gosh, the God who created this, the God who, who laid out these sun rays, he's an awesome God. Right before my wife and I got married, my best man threw me a bachelor party. And he thought it would be a good idea for us to go skydiving. I tried to explain to my white best man that black people don't tend to do stuff like this, but <laughs> he thought it would be a good idea anyway, so he went ahead and set things up. A few of us did it. By God's grace, we all lived. But man, I remember sitting on the edge of the plane as we're 14,000 feet in the air. You know, I was strapped to the front of my guide because it, it was what they call tandem jumping, so I wasn't jumping by myself. And so there, there was a period where he's getting himself situated on the edge of the plane, and I'm strapped to the front of him, literally just hanging outside of the plane. And I remember those moments just kind of looking out at the clouds that I'm about to jump into, you know, scanning the landscape. And I see all of this Tennessee mountain, this terrain that God has ordained and put exactly in the place where he desired it to be. And I'm thinking to myself, this is awesome. God is awesome for creating this. And what's funny is that the, the men who were our guides for skydiving, the jokes they cracked, the hobbies that they talked about enjoying, uh, the things that they laughed at, like, none of that led me to think that these were men who worshiped God. But once we got on the ground, and I went on and on and on about how awesome it was that I'd just seen and how awesome God was for creating it, each and every one of these men agreed with me. Yeah, you're right. It is an awesome God who created those things. And I think that's what awesome is, you know. Awesome are those things that would lead someone who doesn't even worship God to be in awe of who he himself is. And in our passage today, we're going to be introduced to a woman who was the queen of Sheba. And this queen, at witnessing God's work amongst one of God's people, is going to be led to acknowledge God is awesome without, without necessarily knowing who God actually is. So what I want to do now, I want to read the passage for us. I want to go to the Lord in prayer one more time, and then we will dive in and walk through the word of the Lord. So 1 Kings chapter 10, starting at verse 1, we're going to go through verse 13. It reads, The queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame, connected with the name of the Lord, and came to test him with riddles. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage, with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, his servants' residence, his attendant service and their attire, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple, it took her breath away. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your words and about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men? How happy are these servants, are the, are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom? Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. 
Then she gave the king four and a half tons of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again did such a quantity of spices arrive as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. In addition, Hiram's fleet that carried gold from Ophir brought from Ophir a large quantity of almug wood and precious stones. The king made the almug wood into steps for the Lord's temple and the king's palace and into lyres and harps for the singers. Never before did such almug wood arrive and the like has not been seen again. King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba her every desire, whatever she asked, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she, along with her servants, returned to her own country. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you so much for your word. Father, we thank you that you've been gracious enough to give us a guide for how we're to live this life. You've been gracious to reveal to us truth about yourself, truth about ourselves, and how we as sinful people relate to you as the Lord of all salvation. Father, I pray and ask that as we give ourselves to reading your word and studying your word this morning, that you bless us with insight. Holy Spirit, would you enlighten us to the truth and let us leave changed. Let us leave with the intent to be obedient to what you call us to. Father, I pray and ask that if there's someone in the room who doesn't know you, would you also allow them to leave changed? God, would you be so kind to reveal life-changing, eternity-altering truth? Save someone and add to your church if it be your will this morning, Lord. Father, I pray for my own heart and mind as I stand to proclaim your word. As a sinful man on behalf of a sinless God, I pray and ask that you make up for all my inadequacies. Would you move my humanness out of the way? so that your word might go forth, so that your church will be built up, your saints be edified, so that your glory would be beheld this morning, God. We thank you so much for this sacred hour. Would you be with us as we study your word? It's in the name of your son, Christ, we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want us to notice in looking at this passage is that the queen of Sheba is unnamed. The text tells us that she's a queen, and it names the nation that she's queen of, but it doesn't actually tell us what her name is. And I think that's somewhat intentional by the author. See, it seems that from the outset of this passage, he's mostly concerned with his understanding not who the queen of Sheba is, but with the fact that King Solomon has such a level of fame and popularity that the queen of any nation would have known who he was. The text says she heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of the Lord. And now back then, there was no social media. There were no LinkedIn accounts. People didn't go put their employment on their Facebook profiles. So if someone was so famous that foreign rulers were hearing about them in foreign nations, that must mean that these people were actually a pretty big deal, right? And here you've got this queen of Sheba. She's heard of Solomon's fame. And the text says that she heard about it connected with the name of the Lord. Now that was the case because during this time there was such a heightened focus on spiritual powers and, and, and the worship of false gods that if a nation's ruler had notable fame and was evidently blessed, foreign nations would look at this ruler and say, whatever, na- or whatever God that nation worships must be a God worth looking into. So she's heard of Solomon's fame and she has heard of Solomon's God and it says that she wanted to come and test all of this by giving Solomon riddles to see how wise he actually was. The author tells us all of this in the first verse alone. 
And I think the reason he gives us all of these key phrases and indicators right there in the first verse is because he wants us, his readers, to see that this unnamed queen who has heard of Solomon's fame and heard of the God he worships, she wants to test his wisdom, which means she's also testing the God who gave him the wisdom. I think the author wants us to see that this queen of Sheba represents the world and the world's skepticism towards both God and the people of God. So this is point number one. The first thing we're making note of from the text, the world's skepticism. Look at your neighbor and say, the world's skepticism. Something I think that we must be aware of as we continue living in a secular, anti-God kind of world is that there are people in this world who are watching. They're watching those of us who call ourselves Christians, and they're not watching us with the benefit of doubt or with good intentions in mind. But there are some people in this world who are so anti-God that they make the entirety of their lives all about watching and waiting and trying to witness God's people slip. And I think that's somewhat what we have here with the Queen of Sheba. She shows up in Jerusalem. She's got her entourage. She brought all of these riches with her, likely because she wanted to make a, a, a political move and, and get Solomon on her side if, if he was actually who everyone said he was. And in verse 4, the text tells us that after she got there and observed, or the text tells us that after she got there and, and, and Solomon answered all of her questions, she observed his wisdom, his palace, the temple, and so on and so forth. I love the fact that the text uses the word observe. See, to observe something isn't to give a passive glimpse at it. This means that the queen was intentionally looking at all that Solomon had to offer. She was paying attention to the details, the minute details of his fortune. This was likely the kind of observation that, that happens when your mother-in-law shows up at your home and, and, and she slides her finger across your furniture to see how much dust there is. And, and if you've been doing a good job cleaning up, some of y'all might be that mother-in-law. <laughs> the queen is looking intently as she walks throughout Solomon's palace. When I was buying my wife's engagement ring a few years ago, I went to a jeweler that some friends of mine recommended. And they said, this guy's great. You know, he, he uh, sells fine jewels. He's well-educated about what he does. So I go in, and I'm talking with him about what I think I want to get. And you know, I say, yeah, I think Laura wants this kind of diamond on, on this color gold. And so he says, okay, uh, are you looking for more size or are you looking for more clarity? And I said, would you please speak English? Uh, I don't actually know what that means. So what he does is he goes and, and, and gets a bunch of diamonds and, 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 and uh, he begins teaching me about the, the, the different cuts of different diamonds and, and the different levels of clarity within a diamond. And he explained how the size of a diamond isn't actually the top indicator of value, but the clarity meaning how crystal clear and how much capacity a diamond has to shine brightly, that's what increases a stone's value. So, you know, we do the whole thing where he, he gets these diamonds and he turns on his little flashlight and he's twirling the diamonds under a microscope and, and he's teaching me about clarity. And when as, I, as I do this, I see, I'm like, man, I get what you're saying. Some of these diamonds shine much, brightly, much more brightly than the other diamonds do. I was learning to see the true value of diamonds because I paused to give intentional observation to the diamonds. See, there are a lot of things in life that may appear a certain way until you get up close with intentional observation. 
And here we've got the Queen of Sheba. She's observing Solomon's palace in this way. Remember, she represents the skepticism of the world. So as we continue thinking about how the world is skeptical of us as God's people and how they've, that they're purposely watching us, trying to witness us slip, I think we should ask ourselves a question. What will people see when they get up close and observe our lives? Will they find that we're faithful in our jobs because we do all things for the Lord and not for man? Will they find that we have healthy marriages where we seek to serve one another because that's what God calls spouses to do? Will they find that we enjoy being with our church family because we want to be joined together in love and fellowship like God calls the church to be? What will people see if they got up close and observed our lives? See, I know on a personal level that this is a necessary question to ask. Because I found that it's, it's really easy to, to, to live a life that appears vibrant from afar while having all kinds of ungodly stuff going on up close. You know, if people were to know my thoughts or if they were to know what goes on in my heart, would they think the same way about, uh, would they think the same way about me that they think that I'm able to lead them to think from afar? See, we should want to be people who repent for those sins that are hidden so deep that the world would never know they were there without getting up close and observing our lives. I want to search my heart for those sins so that I can be deeply pure before the Lord with a diamond-like clarity that shines brightly and makes him smile when he twirls my life under the microscope. I think God cares about the details that become clear with close observation. And if the world is going to be skeptical, then shouldn't our lives be evidence of who God is. So the next thing I want us to look at is the king's evidence. We've seen the world's skepticism. Now let's look at the king's evidence. Look at your neighbor and say the king's evidence. Now if you look at what's listed about the queen's observations in verse 3, you'll notice that she covers a broad range of categories with what she observes. She looks at Solomon's wisdom. She looks at the palace that he lives in, the, the temple he's built for the Lord, all the way down to the clothing of his servants. And I think the author listed these things because he wants us to know that these are, are, are things that God himself gave details about. God laid out the plan for how these things were supposed to be. If you go read 1 Chronicles 28, you'll see where David, Solomon's father and the king who reigned before Solomon, he gives instructions for building the temple and the houses that go along with the temple and all these details for what this grand establishment in Jerusalem was to be like. And then in 1 Chronicles 28, 19, you'll read this. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. So David says he understood all of this because God himself made the instructions clear to him. And now at this point in the outline, we're talking about uh, the king's evidence, but this is a capital K. That's because I'm not referring to lowercase k, King Solomon, but capital K, King Jehovah. We're talking about the king of kings and how this is his own proof of who he is. See, Solomon had a permanent stance in society because God had given it to him. Solomon had been given influence because he was called to act on behalf of God. And I think all throughout the Old Testament, we see this theme. In Exodus 7, we see that God rescues the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. And he tells them, I'm doing this so that Egypt would know that I am the Lord. And then later in Exodus 16, the people are complaining because they don't trust God to provide for them. And then God blesses his people with an abundance of food. And he tells them, 
Through this provision, you will know that I am the Lord, your God. And then all throughout Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we see God tell his people to teach these truths to the next generations so that for generations and generations, your people will continue to know that I am the Lord, your God. And then later, it's prophesied several times, like in Isaiah 45.3 or Ezekiel 28.24 or Joel 2.27. God says, I'll give you rescue. I'll give you riches. I'll give you provision. I'll give you protection. But my everything I give you be given to you so that you would use and steward in a way that the people who watch your lives know that I am the Lord, your God. Everything the Lord gives, everything he does for us, he gives and does so that the world might know he is the Lord, our God. He gives it so we can use it for his glory. The queen herself hints at this in verse 9. She sees all of Solomon's wisdom and his wealth, and she recognizes that he has it because God has given it to him. Saints, do we live knowing that we're called to point to God in everything we do? It's been that way since the beginning of time. God says, I give you this, I make you that, so that you'll live for my glory. And see, in the same way that God has given Solomon instructions for how he used to build the temple, He's also given us instructions for how we're to build our lives. The very word of God is a, an instruction guide for how we as the people of God are to live. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. We're here to be God's evidence to the skeptical world, and he's given us the instructions for how we're to do that. And now if you're like me, you might read this passage and think to yourself, <laughs> You know, I can take these applications and, 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 and I can just kind of miss all that. This sermon ain't really for me. This, this, this passage isn't for me because I don't have a whole lot of wealth to show off like King Solomon. I don't have a lot of material possessions, so this passage just kind of misses me. Well, to that I say, no, we're wrong. See, we may not have a lot of materials, but we do have life. The entirety of our beings, the totality of who we are, saints, is to be lived to make a big deal of who God is. The beginning of the passage says the, king, the, the queen of Sheba heard about King Solomon's fame in connection with the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, fame and fortune was considered an indicator of blessing and favor. And in the New Testament, some of us have fame and fortune, but all of us who are followers of Christ, we've got the number one, much more significant example of blessing and favor from God. We have new life in Jesus and an infilling of God's Holy Spirit. And is this, saints, that we're to steward and leverage and put on the forefront so that the glory of our great God is seen. When we gain new life in Christ, we gain the most valuable thing ever worthy of having. And we should steward that blessing as one received to be used for the praise of the one who gave it to us. Amen? Amen. We must steward the blessing of God for the glory of God. What the queen witnesses in Old Testament Jerusalem, God is calling us to be in New Testament South Carolina or New Testament Baltimore. 21st century Baltimore, God wants us to be what she saw in Old Testament Jerusalem. Notice that one of the things she observes in verse 5 is the Lord's temple. It says she observed the burnt offering Solomon offered at the Lord's temple, and it took her breath away. Now the temple in the Old Testament was the architectural structure that represented God's presence. 
If you go back and read chapter 8 of this same book, you'll see where Solomon has this long dedication of the temple as a place where God would dwell and the people would come to worship God. But in the New Testament, Christ comes and there is no more temple. We, the people of God, we carry God's presence. We carry his presence because he fills us with his spirit when he saves us. And Ephesians 2 tells us that we do this both as individual bricks, but also as a corporate temple that, that, that God builds for the glory of his name. But do we see the joy in this, friends? We glorify the Lord as individual bricks that come together to form a breathtaking, spirit-filled house of God. And the clearest way we see this now is by participating and being a part of a local church. So when we do things like come together and, and sing worshipful songs like we did this morning, the Lord is pleased in that. Yeah. Or when we're outside the church walls and we, we, we choose to, to provide a meal for a church family that's on hard times, the Lord is glorified in that. Or when you choose to intentionally love a church member that voted differently in this election than you did, the Lord is glorified in that. Or when you simply call one another to check in and offer accountability, to offer encouragement, the Lord smiles when his people behave this way. All of this, it brings much glory to the Lord God. And it might just lead someone, like the Queen of Sheba, to be in awe of who our God is. John 13, Jesus says that we'll be known by our love for one another. Well, how great would it be if the people of Baltimore could look at the people of the Garden Church and think to themselves, that's crazy. I don't know what it is about those folks and why they love one another so radically, but I see it and I'm drawn to it. Jesus. Especially in a day where we've got so many polarizing issues, right? There's so much in our society that, 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 that gives us the potential to be divided and, and to, to, to make us be a people who are separated and apart today. But that means we should be extra intentional and extra careful not to let the glory of God and the beauty of his temple be tainted by division or lack of love for one another. We must remember that we as individuals and as a church family, we're our king's evidence of his glory. And when the world witnesses this evidence, through us as the people of God, we give them a testimony that cannot be denied. So the next thing I want us to look at is how the queen responds to this evidence. We've seen the world's skepticism. We've seen the king's evidence. Now we're going to look at the world's response. Look at your neighbor and say, the world's response. In verse 9, we see that the queen of Sheba tells Solomon, blessed be the Lord your God. She witnesses all of his fortune, and she says, blessed be the Lord your God. Now, I don't think this is the Queen of Sheba uh, worshiping as one who's saved. But I think this is the Queen of Sheba realizing that making friends with Solomon and his God would be a good political move for her. This was during a time where foreign rulers would, would, would form alliances and, and act as if they represented and respected one another's gods solely for the purpose of securing favor and feeling as though if we go to war someday, I know this nation has my back because I paid homage to their God. She doesn't even point out that God himself is great. She blesses his name, and she points to all that he gives Solomon. 
So she's more focused on the, the wealth and the wisdom and the prosperity and the power of Solomon. And she thinks that paying him the right amount of this stuff that she brought with her will earn her favor and lead him to go to war for her if push came to shove. But she does notice that God has eternal love for his people. And she does notice that all she's heard about, about God giving Solomon wisdom, all of that stuff is indeed true. It just leads her to admire what God gives his people in physical form instead of desiring what God gives his people in spiritual form. Listen to me, saints. There will be some who understand God to be a sovereign ruler without understanding him to be their sovereign ruler. There will be some who understand God to be a sovereign ruler without understanding him as their sovereign ruler. There'll be some who gain a, a cognitive understanding of who God is without gaining a heartfelt understanding of who he is. There may even be some here today who can identify with this. You see all that God is, but you don't acknowledge him as all of this for you. Or might it be that you're moved by how powerful God is, but you're not actually moved by how his power has forever changed your life by affording you salvation? Do you live with joyful obedience because of what God has done, or do you merely confess with your lips, blessed be the Lord God? Do you call yourself Christian because that's what your grandma told you to do? Or do you actually worship God because you have personal love for him? Might you be like the Queen of Sheba? Well, you can only say, blessed be the Lord, your God, because you don't know him in a way that allows you to say, blessed be the Lord, my God. The Queen of Sheba recognizes that Solomon's God is magnificent. So she makes an investment into the kingdom of Solomon. And if you look quickly at the last verse of our passage, you see it tells us that, that she then returned home to her country. I think the author wrote it that way for, uh, to kind of reinforce that this was her making a political move and then returning home to continue worshiping her false gods. This is an unnamed queen. That's likely another, re or another sign that she wasn't one of God's people. The author doesn't name her because without her name being written in God's book of life, she has no eternal lasting significance. There will be some who come with skepticism, witness the evidence, then respond by acknowledging God's power without giving their lives to him. And what we as the church have to remember when this happens is that there's not a whole lot that we can do about it. God will save who he saves. We're just called to be faithful in presenting the right evidence so that they have a chance at knowing him. And that brings us to my last point. The last thing I want us to look at is what Solomon does with the queen's gifts. So point number four the king's responsibility. Look at your neighbor and say, the king's responsibility. Now this point in the outline is no longer talking about uppercase K, King God, but now we're actually talking about lowercase K, King Solomon. Solomon shows us how we as the people of God should steward the blessings and influence that God gives us. And there's not a whole lot of fascinating stuff that Solomon shows us here. Verses 9 through 11 show us that the Queen of Sheba gives Solomon one of the largest gifts he's ever seen. Then another political ruler comes along and does the same thing in verse 11. So Solomon gets these two large gifts. He gets these two donations of valuables. And then verse 12 tells us that he begins using it 
to make the Lord's temple more beautiful. Look at verse 12. The king made the almug wood into steps for the Lord's temple and the king's palace and into lyres and harps for the singers. Never before did such almug wood arrive and the like has not been seen again. So Solomon took this platform and the wisdom that God had given him and he used it all to prove that God was worthy of worship and then he takes what's given to him as a result of his fame and he immediately uses it in a way that would continue to advance God's glory. He wanted to give the Lord more glory. Can we say we would have done the same thing? Well, we have done the same thing, friends. Do you live your life taking all that God has given, taking all that God has made you, seeking to be a blessed people for the sake of blessing God? Or might you be more about using God's gifts for your own comfort and gain? When people look at your life and how you use your gifts from God, or they left breathless at God's glory like the Queen of Sheba was? Is there a level of holiness and love for, for God that would take someone's breath away? That's the only way worthy of living. It's the only life worthy of giving ourselves to. Solomon knew that. And that's why he instantly invested this stuff into the Lord's temple. It was donated and he stewarded it for the Lord's glory. But now what I don't want to do is make it seem like Solomon is all good in this passage. Because I do have bad news. Look at your neighbor and say, uh-oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> See, this passage doesn't end continuing on with the good holy Solomon that we've seen thus far. The passage ends with a demonstration of Solomon's humanity and his imperfection. Verse 13 was one of those verses that, man, it, I'm doing my sermon prep and I'm reading through commentaries, trying to study the passage. I'm sure Joel can attest to this. There are some passages you preach and you come to a certain verse and it seems like no commentator has a single thing to say about this verse. So I'm studying and, and, and I get to verse 13 and I read, King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba her every desire, whatever she asked, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. And no commentator explained why this verse was there. So I'm like, okay, either there's something extremely obvious that I'm just missing, or the commentators are also confused about why this verse is here. So I start asking myself questions. Why is this verse in the Bible? You know, why would God have inspired this verse to be written? What is the author trying to communicate by writing this particular? I'm asking all these questions they teach you in seminary that leads to, to good biblical interpretation. And then it dawns on me. <laughs> this is King Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, is a foreign woman. And see, what we know when we look at the entire story of King Solomon's life is that although he was a great king who did great things for God, and he was the king who built this glorious temple for God, and he was a great king who God gave exponential wisdom to, and he was a great king who established this extravagant lifestyle that we've just read about, he was the king who rulers from foreign nations would come just to spend time with, he was a human king. And he had human flaws. King Solomon had a problem saying no to foreign women. The very next chapter tells us that God had forbidden King Solomon from marrying foreign women because they would lead him to worship foreign gods. But we see this strange devotion to the Queen of Sheba in verse 13. And now, 
it doesn't say that, that she becomes his wife or that, uh, that they become lovers or anything like that. But what we do see is that King Solomon has a strong liking for the woman. Not only does he give her whatever she wants, beyond his royal bounty, or not only does he give her whatever she wants from his royal bounty, but even beyond it, he gives her whatever she asks for. And the rest of chapter 10 tells us a little more about Solomon's riches. But I think in verse 13 of chapter 10, the author is showing us this. He's trying to show us how King Solomon would give up anything for this foreign queen in order to prepare us for what he writes at the beginning of chapter 11. Thus far, the book has only been about King Solomon's wealth and his wisdom and his faithfulness to God. But we come to chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and we see King Solomon's kryptonite. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 read, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon, had, or Solomon was deeply attached in love. 700 wives and 300 concubines. So we see King Solomon fails. Despite all of his faithfulness, we come to the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11, and we see that he disobeys direct orders from the Lord. And I told you this was bad news. But here's why it's bad news, not only for King Solomon, but also for all of us. Because if we're going to compare ourselves to King Solomon at any point in this passage, we cannot forget to compare ourselves to him right here in these verses. What we're seeing is that King Solomon was flawed and sinful. He was incapable of living a perfect life with perfect obedience to God. And the exact same thing is true about all of us. We're flawed. We're sinful. We're incapable of living perfectly obedient to God. And the very bad news is that God demands perfect obedience from us. God, the creator of all things, he created all things for the worship and glory of his great name. But we as mankind, we fall short of that glory. We sin and we fail to fulfill the purpose that God created us with. And it's for that reason, saints, that we must say praise be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, to Christ, what we're incapable of doing by ourselves God accomplishes, and he does for us. Christ came from heaven. He put on human flesh. He lived a perfect life without sin, and then he died a death as if he had not. Also that we who do sin could be seen in light of his perfection, be saved from eternal damnation, and be reconciled to God our Father if we believe this truth and make Christ our Lord. Hallelujah, right? So in conclusion, friends, my encouragement is not for you to go and try mustering up strength to be a perfect King Solomon. My encouragement for you is to recognize that you can't be a perfect King Solomon. But God has already provided the perfect King Jesus. And when we reckon with that truth, saints, we should be compelled not only to live our lives for God's glory, but to steward all that we have and all that we are so that he's continuously glorified and so that the world might look and see that's a God worth following and laying my life down for.
Ponder what God has done for you. And in your pondering, strive to make sure that all you have, all that you are, is stewarded for the glory of our great God. Be a, be a blessed people for the sake of blessing God. So Father, I pray and ask that you would help us live our lives toward this end. Would you make us a people that realizes all the ways that we're blessed? Not only with material goods, God, but with the, the great gift of salvation in Christ. Would you make us a people that recognizes how great and imperishable this gift is? And then make us into a people that seeks to steward it for your glory. Advancing your kingdom. Living for the world to see how great you are. Help us to be this as individuals. Help us to be this as your church, God. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.